Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood with Storytime. Doing a couple episodes close together to make up for my long gap between the last couple. Hope you don't mind. I don't really have anything to add that's new since sending out the last one so we'll just get straight into the story last we were with our protagonist slash hero we think he's gonna be a hero we'll see i mean we just met him yili he had just rescued the uh blonde-haired lady from the beach as her boating companion slash husband slash whatever he was we never really knew got eaten up by the beast okay let's continue on Hope you enjoy it. Talk to you on the flip side. The Beast and the Godwoman. Written by me. Read by me. And I apologize. Part 2. Yili stumbled into the village, his burden grown so great that he could barely place one foot in front of the other. The shadows had long since grown into giants that quickly fled before the onset of twilight. Fires were lit in the pits, the torches placed in their holders, around the village's perimeter, beating back the growing darkness. Everyone would be gathered for the evening meal, followed by games and songs, or perhaps stories from one of the elders. The thought of that pleasant company, the joy of family and friends, was all that had kept him going these last few hours. He halfway expected to be devoured as the man had been, but somehow he made it to the tree line where the beast could not touch them. It did not take long to decide that he could not simply drag the woman all the way back to the village. It was too far, and she would likely be injured in the process. So he had, mustering all his strength, scooped her up. She was not as heavy as he had feared, but neither was she light. He quickly found he was able to travel more readily with her drooped over his shoulders. That was until he reached the path up the island's central mountain. The people had good reasons for locating their village on the mountain's flank, not the least of which was it placed them far enough from the beach and the beast that there was no worry of accidentally wandering too close. But the path was steep, difficult enough when not carrying a burden. Several times Yuli thought he would fall, setting himself and the woman both tumbling down the path and probably causing grave injury to both of them. But he made it. As he stepped into the circle of firelight that marked the village's boundary, his spirits lifted. For a moment, he almost forgot what had happened down on the beach. But that did not last. Yili's return sparked an outburst of interest, at first because he had returned and so much later than normal. Kaylee led the crowd of villagers rushing toward him, relief and joy on her face, but she stopped before reaching him, almost skidding to a halt as she beheld his burden. The others did as well. No one came within half a dozen paces of him. They all just stood there in a loose half-circle, staring in surprise, curiosity, and fear at him and at what he carried. Finally, the elders came forth. The crowd parted before their withered, powerful forms, 
younger men and women making respectful half-bows as they allowed the village's leaders passage. The wise ones looked at him severely, their eyes narrowed such that he could not read their expressions. But they said nothing. Yili swallowed. It was always thus when something was done that needed explaining. The elders never questioned. They simply watched with their eyes that missed nothing and waited for an explanation. Some of the youngest men among the people played a game who could hold out the longest beneath their gaze before confessing the truth. When he was younger, Yili had played that game too. Fool that he was. To his knowledge, no one had ever lasted beyond a slow count to thirty. After reaching forty-five, part of his mind screamed to Yili that he was perhaps even more foolish than he had been all those years ago. Yili told the tale of his encounter on the beach. The people were taken aback, as he would have expected them to be. Had he not been there himself, he would not have believed such a turn of events possible either. And yet they happened. He was living proof of it, and so was his burden. The elders frowned, all of them, their expressions troubled. Then they retreated to confer amongst themselves, pausing only to tell him to place the strange woman down on a pallet in the hut nearest the central bonfire. The hut belonged to Pau, Nila, and their small daughter, Teya, but they did not complain. If anything, they seemed honored that the elders had deemed their home worthy of such an honor. Yili did as instructed and then finally embraced his wife. Kaylee was trembling, the anxiety of her evening finally letting loose now that he was here. It did not help to hear of the terror he had endured, Yili was sure. As he drew her close, he felt a deep shame. She had been through so much, losing her first husband the way she had. As Yola's younger brother, it was his duty to look after her after he passed, but nothing forced him to take her as his wife. It would have been completely within his rights to take another, so long as he provided for Kaylee and his brother's children. But he had always felt affection, more than affection, for her. It had not taken long before, in his brother's absence, that affection had grown into much more. He could no more have taken another than he could have cut off his own arm. When she accepted his offer, he felt a relief and a joy that he never thought to experience. The imminent arrival of their first child together was the only thing in his life that surpassed that feeling. And yet... And yet, as he held her, and he felt her arms clutch him tightly, he found himself looking back at the godwoman who lay within Pau and Nila's hut. The magical gold of her hair, the curve of her legs, her hips, her breasts. And he felt a longing that he had not felt with Kaylee before. The elders liked to tell the tale of Armsrung, who dared to fly from the world's embrace, far away until he touched the moon itself and returned to earth a god in his own right. Yili had never understood such an impulse before, but now... What would it be like to touch a god and be touched in return? Would that not import godhood unto the man who dared such a thing? Yili shook himself, willing his thoughts back to the present, the now. Kili was his woman, his beloved, the mother of his children, who had only ever treated him with warmth and the deepest respect. He owed her far better than that. And then the elders returned, their faces, if possible, even more troubled than when they left to confer. In hushed tones, they decreed that no one was to interact with the godwoman except themselves. To even approach her hut was to invite the sun god's kiss. Yili shuddered at the thought, but voiced no protest. Their decree made sense. The elders then gestured for the crowd to disperse to go back to their homes. There would be no stories this night. The evening had brought enough ancient legends to life as it was. Yili could not fault them for that decree either. Suddenly weary and no wonder, considering all he had witnessed and done that day, he walked with Kaylee back to their hut. 
where the twins were already fast asleep. He wasted only the half moment it took to strip off his loincloth before flinging himself down onto his and Kaylee's furs. He barely felt her snuggling next to him before he drifted off into a deep sleep. Two days later, the godwoman awoke. The elders were not sure how long it would be or whether she would ever awaken again, but Yili knew she would come around. It was a certainty as far as he was concerned. The likes of her do not just roll over and die so easily. He stayed as close to her tent as he could for as long as he could each day. He almost let his work for the village slip. He would have had Kaylee not been on hand to direct him back into the right road. And so he did his job and did it well, collecting fruits as well as a couple trapped rodents each day for the evening meal. But when he was not off doing that or assisting Kaylee with the young ones, he was near the hut. Sometime during the first night, the elders selected guards for the hut and ordered them to be severe with anyone who strayed too close to the godwoman. But they recognized Yili as the one who had brought her in from the wild, so they did not question the fact that he remained so close. And so he was close at hand when she awoke. The first sign was a shrill shriek that emanated from the hut as she came to in unfamiliar environs. After that came the words of the woman appointed to watch over and care for her. They were carefully chosen words, meant to be comforting, but her shrieks only became louder. Yili did not wait to be asked. He darted forward toward the tent, cursing the women and, God help him, the elders, for being idiots. He had told them she would not be able to understand them, but had they listened? The guards did not stop him. They were too absorbed by the small drama going on within the hut, and anyway, it was not like he intended harm to the godwoman or any of the normal women who cared for her. He arrived just in time to see the godwoman sitting on the ground shove Guana away with so much force that she stumbled backwards and bounced off the side of the hut. Guana was more tough than her slender build led on. She shrugged off the pain of her impact and drew herself upright, ready, no doubt, to give the godwoman a piece of her mind. Yili would have loved to watch, or rather listen, to such a discussion if he were not so wearied by the concept of waiting, and so cynical, he chose the word for himself, about how such arguments would never amount to anything. So instead, he raised his voice to get Guana's attention, then directed her to exit the hut. She glared at him as she left, and Yili knew he was going to be in trouble. Incredible trouble, with the elders as soon as she gathered her wits and complained to them about what had happened. But he also knew he was right. He was there on the beach when she arrived. He had seen her companion, her husband, maybe, die. It must be he who explained matters to her. As Guana left Yili and the godwoman alone together, Yili was again struck by her physical presence, her appeal. He had never seen a woman to equal her before. Ever. He shook himself slightly to recover his wits. He must have said the same thing to himself any number of times over the last couple days. It was silly, and besides, a god would have no use for a mere human such as he. And, and he was married. Yidi gave an inward start of surprise when he discovered he had to remind himself of that fact. Before he could chastise himself properly, the woman spoke, less shrilly than before, with less obvious panic. She was someplace good and helpful. Why else would they have taken the time to fish her out of the sea? Or at least, Yili presumed that was what she thought. It was obvious they were just trying to help her, after all. Yili squatted down next to her and smiled. Pressing his hand to his chest, he said his name slowly, as he had with the man. The godwoman just looked at him for a long moment, then nodded slowly and pointed at herself. K 
Carol, she said. She paused, then looked down at the dirt floor of the hut. When she spoke again, it was in a near whisper. Eric? Yili had no idea what she was trying to say, so he simply shook his head. The godwoman, Carol, spoke again more forcibly, demanding, Eric! Yili retreated a half-step, remaining in a crouch. Something about her tone was disquieting. Again he shook his head, adding a gesture of confusion in the hopes she would understand better. She was growing frustrated. He could see it on her face. She rolled her eyes and forced herself to her feet, nearly falling back to the ground in the process as her knees wobbled. As she caught herself, her hand landed on her hip and her eyes widened. Yili had not noticed before that the strange loincloth, it was larger and at the same time more tight than a loincloth, going down to mid-thigh on her legs, had pouches built into its sides. She fished her hand into one of the pouches and, with a small grin of triumph, pulled a strange object out. It was almost like leather, but it flipped open easily. She worked around in the thing for a short time, then pulled out a small, thin object and held it out to him. Gods above! Her companion, the godman, was there, trapped within the thing she held. Yili jumped backwards, landing on his feet as a sudden fright sped through him. What strange magic was this? Carol flinched at his sudden movement, but did not put the thing away. Instead, she stepped toward him. With her free hand, she pointed at the trapped man and said again, Eric? Suddenly, it became clear. Eric was the godman's name. Yili sighed and dropped his eyes. He shook his head and made a cutting gesture across his throat. Carol's breath caught and her eyes went wide. Her lips began to tremble. Yili saw tears beginning to well up. Then she dropped down onto the ground and began to sob in loss, in despair. Three weeks passed. For most of the first, the elders limited the people's contact with Carol for fear of frightening them, or her, more than necessary, and because they did not know how she would react to so many new faces at once, especially being unable to communicate with them. Only a select few women, the elders themselves, and Yili were allowed to see her. Yili suspected had he not been the first one to get her to open up at all, he would have been excluded as well. The notion caused him far more consternation than he would have thought. By the end of the first week, though, Carol seemed to accept that they were not going to hurt her, and that they had not killed Eric. Or at least, she stopped looking at them with tearful, half-frightened eyes. And so the elders allowed her the run of the village. She began walking amongst the people, in company with one of the more familiar women, or of Yili. By the middle of the second week, she began helping with some common chores around the village and trying to learn the language. The men were all amazed at her skill with knots. She could tie a vine and bind branches together in ways that no one in the village had ever considered before. Before long, using the new knotting technique she taught, the people began making some much-needed improvements. Because of her contribution and the fact that she was quickly picking up at least a smattering of the language, the people lost their initial unease around Carol. By the end of the third week, she was like a familiar friend. Not family, obviously. She would never be truly one of them, as different as she was. But she was no longer the other to be feared and watched. And for her part, she seemed more comfortable with them as well. All the same, Yili noticed she would often stare off into nothing with a haunted look on her face and in the evenings she would cry herself to sleep. Then some of the hunters found Eric's body. Three men brought him into the village at noon. His body was decaying and rank, putrid even, but the elders had decreed that he be found if possible and returned for a proper burial. 
After Yili described where on the beach the event had occurred, some men were sent each day to search. Yili had gone himself the first several days, even though he knew there was no hope of finding anything. The beast had taken him away to the netherworld, and men could not travel there. But in the end, the elders were right. They were always right. The hunters related they had found a mound of sand not far from the tree line, about 150 paces from the place Yili specified, and that crabs were swarming over it. It was in that mound that they found him. He was almost unrecognizable, except for his golden hair and large size, but Ker Ol knew him at once and rushed to his side before the hunters had lowered him to the ground. There she wept for what seemed an hour. The pain and loss that Yili had thought dampened by the passage of days apparently still sharp. He stood there, watching her in her grief for a long time before he realized Kaylee had come to stand next to him. She watched Carol with eyes that reflected the godwoman's grief, and Yili recalled how long it had taken her to move past Yola's death. It had been months before she was able to give herself to him fully, even though they had been married only a few days after the cremation. Yili put his arm around Kaylee's shoulder and drew her close. She snuggled in, rubbing against him in that comfortable way that was her want, and he thought she sobbed a little. You should become friends with her, he said softly, and she stiffened. She shook her head quickly, and he continued. It might help her to be with a woman who has also known loss. Kaylee looked at him for a long moment, then nodded. She looked almost nervous, but when she left his grasp and turned toward Carol, her back was straight. She walked over to the weeping woman and sank down next to her. Slowly, as though wary to touch her, Kaylee reached out and placed her hand on Carol's shoulder and gave it a gentle squeeze. Carol looked up at her in surprise. She and Kaylee had hardly interacted at all during her sojourn in the village. Then seeing something in Kaylee's eyes, perhaps a reflection of her own pain and understanding, she grabbed Yili's wife in a fierce embrace. Soon, they were both crying together. They did not delay, but held the ceremony and cremated Eric at sunset. Normally, there would be a day devoted to remembrances of the deceased, words said in his honor, and a grand feast. But no one knew Eric except for Carol, and he was so far decayed that to delay would have been to risk scavengers and sickness. And so there was just a simple ceremony, the elders taking a short while to intone the blessings of the gods on their returning brother, and then the funeral pyre was lit. Most of the people filtered away quickly after the body was fully ablaze. After all, the trail from the promontory overlooking the northern beach, where they held the final ceremonies for the dead, while not particularly steep, was narrow and it would be better to not navigate it after dark. After a few minutes, only Shumei, the wisest of the elders, Yili and Kaylee, remained with Carol beside the fire. Kaylee stood at Carol's side. It looked as though she was whispering to the godwoman. As adept as Carol had proven at learning the language, Yili would not have been surprised if she understood a fair amount of what Kaylee was saying. Yili and Shumei stood apart, giving them space. Shumei stared at the fire, a deep frown on her lips, and was silent for a long time. When she finally spoke, it was in a low tone that would not carry to the two women. I am troubled, Yili. He nodded. We all noticed. Shumei sniffed. First Yula, and now this. The beast had not attacked anyone in my lifetime until your brother. And now another victim, so soon afterwards. Yili frowned. Three years was hardly soon, but then... When one is looking back from the span of fifty years, as Shumei did, three years must seem just a blink. What are you saying? This woman and her man were sent by the gods, that is obvious. But for what purpose? 
She drew her shawl, made from the hides of two boars, tight around herself as though to ward off a chill, even though the evening was far from cold, even without the bonfire. You think the beast means to thwart their mission. Is it not obvious? She may shook her head. I worry that, with that woman here among us, the beast may not keep to the beach any longer. Ely recoiled as though smacked. What? The import of her words struck him, and he shook his head. No, that is impossible. The beast walks the sand to thwart man's rebellion against the gods, to keep us from the sea. So it had always been said. The beast was the gods, and particularly the sun gods, opposite, thus always worked against them. But its nature was such that it also did the gods' will without realizing it, by hunting men who would stray to places they were not meant to go. I wonder... Shumei's words trailed off, and she was silent for a long time, just staring at the blaze. Finally, she rolled her shoulders and stepped away from the pyre, toward the path back to the village. Before she left, she placed a slender, bony hand on Yili's shoulder. Watch her closely, Yili, she said. If she becomes a danger to us... Shumei left the rest unsaid, but Yili understood. Sent by the gods or not, if Ker'ul brought the beast down on the people, they would have to move against her stave off their own destruction. It was like a dagger through his heart. Uh-oh. Is this politics? Jealousy? Supernatural conflict? I don't know. You find out next time as the story continues. You can also go by the story if you want to find out sooner. You know where to go. My website is SSN Storytelling. It's also on every other ebook store in the planet. Still haven't done the print copy, though I need to. Yeah, that's all I got. Um, drop me a line, michaelkingswood.com. You can find a contact form there. You can reach me on Facebook, even though I'm hardly ever there. And leave comments on the video and the podcast. That'll work, too. Don't know what you think about the stories and what I'm doing. Any suggestions or comments? I'm always happy to hear them. Until um, then, talk to you next week. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>